1791, George Washington asked Pierre Charles L'Enfant, <clears throat> who was a French volunteer in the Revolution, to design a new federal city on the Potomac for the young American Republic. L'Enfant suffered from constant interference, uh, but he persisted for a year before being dismissed. However, his ambitious, dramatic, geometrical, and grand plan for the District of Columbia survived, and it endures to this day, sometimes much to the dismay of visitors. And uh, if you've ever driven the streets of Washington, you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, in Grand Avenues, our speaker resurrects the talented, passionate L'Enfant and reveals how his influence persists in the nation's capital all these many years later. After all that has changed, L'Enfant's imprint is still on our capital city. Scott W. Berg is a professor of English at George Mason University. He teaches nonfiction writing and literature in the undergraduate and graduate creative writing programs, and I'm hoping he'll send us an intern one of these days among this talented group of young people that he uh, helps. Dr. Berg published, publishes frequently in the Washington Post and other venues and regularly speaks to local and national audiences about the origins and the plan of Washington, D.C. He's a very talented and engaging speaker, so please welcome Scott Berg, who will speak to us about Grand Avenues, the story of Pierre Charles L'Enfant, the French visionary who designed Washington, D.C. Scott. Thank you. I'd like to uh, start by expressing my gratitude to uh, Nelson and to the uh, Historical Society for having me here and for all of you um, for taking time out of your day uh, to attend. I'd also like to thank the folks that were responsible for completing the Fairfax County Parkway as of two days ago to shave 10 minutes off my commute from Reston. Here, so it, it really is pretty nice now if you travel up there. Um, I've got a slide on the screen here, and this slide is going to stay here, a sort of wallpaper, but also hopefully instructional wallpaper. It, this is uh, a drawing, and it's, the, it's a retracing of the drawing, which I'll explain in a second, but it's a drawing that is an extremely important historical document, and it's absolutely one of a kind. Um, this is the only extant drawing of the federal city in Pierre L'Enfant's hand. Um, some of you may be aware of this, but the actual drawing, which sits in a chamber at the Library of Congress, which I'll be talking about later uh, here, that drawing is faded and smudged and sort of darkened beyond recognition unless you really know what you're looking for. Um, if you're very, very familiar with this plan and you go look at that document, you can see that it is a design, it is a plan of, of Washington, D.C., but short of that kind of familiarity, you would have just recognized it as a brown sheet of paper. This is a, uh, in fact, it says up there, traced over and, and restored my friend Don Hawkins, a Washington area architect and architectural historian, uh, took a scan, uh, a, a tracing, actually, that he did a tracing of the drawing, he was allowed to do this, and uh, created this sort of very evocative picture. This is not what L'Enfant's drawing would have looked like. We don't know exactly what L'Enfant's drawing would have looked like, but the original copy would have been a cream-colored paper background, and the colors would have been different. But 
what my friend Don was doing, and I think very well in this one, was uh, trying to achieve sort of middle ground between sort of the evocative sepia-toned historical document that exists today and the original sort of very sort of clear and, and uh, document that L'Enfant produced. And so that's what you're looking at here. And I just sort of wanted to say that before I began. Grand Avenue's the book. Uh, I wrote this book. It was published in 2007, February of 2007. So it's been uh, over three years. I've spoken about it many, many times. And what I'm going to talk about today is both L'Enfant's life and his work, but also this particular document, which is the more and more that I sort of um, reflect on this subject, the more I realize that, that the story of this document, as you'll hear, is, is in many ways what the story of Grand Avenues. Um, and so I'm very interested in, in telling you some things about this document, but also helping you sort of understand uh, L'Enfant as, as, as much as we can. Um, in Grand Avenues begins, chapter one, with L'Enfant arriving in March of 1791 from New York City, where he had been working and living, to take on the job of designing the federal city, a, a commission that he had been handed personally, although uh, by letter, by, by George Washington. It, essentially, George Washington at that moment was his patron, uh, and it was quite a commission for a young designer and architect and artist who had come over at the age of 22 as a volunteer in the French army, uh, very much about the, the lowest person on the ladder uh, of the French volunteers, uh, not a distinguished name, uh, not from an especially wealthy or distinguished family. Uh, his father was a court, a painter of battles for the court of Louis the uh, Louis XV, but not a famous name at all. And arise from those sort of relatively humble origins, arise to steady climb to this position that the probably the most famous man on the planet or one of the most famous men on the planet at that moment, George Washington, was personally selecting him to design what would become the new capital of the United States, its federal city. The story of that rise very quickly within 11 months of him arriving on the, the job, and this is what the book also narrates, turns into a story of a very precipitous fall as he, uh, within 11 months of beginning work on this, is depending on who you believe, is either dismissed or was fired from the job. And uh, that's in 1792. He, doesn't, uh, he dies in 1825. In the last 15 years of that, he's a charity case in uh, first in uh, Maryland, south of the, the district, and then in Maryland, north of the district, and uh, the ward of a family with the name of Diggs, a rather famous family. And so Grand Avenue's charts this rise, this fall, and only 75 years later in 1900 with the Macmillan Commission plan that sort of reinvigorates Washington, D.C., does he get his due, and there's the redemption part of the story. So that's the structure of Grand Avenues. That's the way it works. In the epilogue of Grand Avenues, I leave behind the narrative of Pierre L'Enfant, or Peter as he preferred to be called, uh, and I chart instead the, the life story, if you will, uh, of this historical document, and I'm actually at the end of this talk uh, going to read you a, a little bit of that epilogue. Um, charting the story of this document, the city plan. This is the plan he presented to George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and James Madison in Philadelphia in August of 1791. This is the official 
plan. It had gone through a couple different versions. The drawing is the only extant example in his hand, as I said, of the, of the plan of the federal city. And it's a document that endured a long history of indifference and neglect until it was rescued in the early 20th century by the Library of Congress. In some ways, Grand Avenue is, is as much the biography of this document, and it's generally called the 1791 Manuscript Plan. Um, on the final page of my book, I describe this drawing, this plan, as, quote, the first work of Western art of international importance that was produced in or for America. Or, sorry, back up. The first great artistic achievement that could be, truly be called American, echoing other judgments uh, that other historians had made. And that's what I want to talk a little bit, bit about here today is L'Enfant's called an engineer. He's not an engineer. He was never trained as an engineer. L'Enfant is called a soldier. He was not a good soldier. He was involved in two battles. In the second one, he tried to light fire to some British defenses in the siege of Savannah. He was uh, wounded in the leg, and that ended his military career. Uh, he wanted military distinction, but he was not particular particularly uh, capable of achieving it. Um, he was not an engineer. He was not a soldier. His training was at the Royal Academy of Painting and Sculpture in Paris. He was trained at one of the most prestigious uh, schools of art in the Western world at that time. And I think of this as a work of art. And it's interesting to me and has become more interesting since the publication of my book to think of this plan as a work of art. And to dig deeper into that notion of the city plan as a work of art, um, it's useful to sort of define what we mean by art. And being a teacher of sort of uh, being a teacher of both nonfiction writing but also literature, I like to borrow my definitions of art from literature. And the one I really fond of uh, was created by the Italian writer Umberto Eco. Some of you, the name of the rose was probably his most well-known book. He describes the novel as quote a machine for generating interpretation. And he also describes something called the poetic effect, meaning the artistic effect in literature, as, quote, the capacity that a text displays for continuing, continuing to generate different readings without ever being completely consumed. And I love those definitions. I mean, I love them. And he covers, Eco covers a great deal of ground in those short phrases. He uses the word machine to connote a made thing that itself makes uh, generates interpretations and readings. And the best works of literature and the best works of art produce an ongoing argument about meaning that can, in extraordinary cases, seem never-ending. And the longer those kinds of arguments go on and the more distant they move from the original act of creation, the more difficult it can be to discern the wishes and intentions of the creator, which then leads to a different set of questions that at least in the field of literature, we wrestle with all the time. How much allegiance do we owe the artist's intentions in a reading of his or her work? How do we even begin to figure out what those intentions were? At what point, if any, does the importance of those intentions begin to sort of recede and be replaced by other concerns? These are tantalizing questions. They're fun to talk about. They're very important questions to ask. And I think they're productive and important questions to ask about the city plan in the United States Capitol, because a great city is like a great novel, full of plots, subplots, large themes, stylistic choices, symbolic objects and gestures, central characters, peripheral characters, and Washington, D.C. certainly is no exception. And sort of this line of thinking has led me 
to the thought that this manuscript plan for DC has much like a classic work of literature been subject to a wide range of readings. Some of those readings are meaning interpretations or some of those readings seem brilliant, some useful, some wishful, uh, some maddening um, as the city's been shaped and reshaped over more than two centuries. Um, a work of art is first and foremost a work of expression and as a product of expression it requires the artist to be articulate in whatever form the medium requires. Paint, song, line. And L'Enfant pro provides us an especially interesting conundrum as we seek to understand the meanings of his plan because he was at the same time enormously articulate and inarticulate. In the language of drawn line, as a sketch artist, an engineering illustrator, architect, city planner, he had few if any equals in the United States of the Revolutionary and Federalist era. It was not a country full of uh, people who were doing a lot of drawing. Um, it, it, was a it was a country where, where there was full a lot of work, a lot of talking, a lot of other things, but, but art uh, was not something that uh, the United States took as its first priority in the last decades of the 18th century. Um, he had few equals. He had been trained at the Royal Academy of Painting and Sculpture. As far as I know, at least uh, when he was working on the city of D.C., that made him unique in the United States. But in the language of words, especially the English language, L'Enfant faced an enormous challenge. Uh, and it's one he often failed to meet. I've spent hours, and not hours is the wrong word, hours and hours and days and days and weeks at the Library of Congress with his letters and his manuscripts. And transcribing them is uh, a daunting task, to say the best. Um, yet this handicap with language uh, didn't prevent him from producing tens of thousands of written words about his work on the federal city uh, before, during, and after the project. Uh, the, the interesting thing for, for, for a, a physical place, a three-dimensional place that's based on a two-dimensional drawing, writing was very important to the process of the creation of Washington, D.C. And part of that reason for that is because uh, the person overseeing the creation of Washington, D.C. was George Washington. Um, L'Enfant's writings about the federal city were produced in three forms, a fairly small collection of letters to various involved and interested parties, including Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton, Washington, many other people, um, a series of longer memorandums, as they called them, and those were written at Washington's behest. Uh, Washington liked to work this way, as many of you, I'm sure, know. When he had a dilemma, a problem to solve, uh, an issue to think over, he would have the relevant advisors uh, write him long memorandums. He would not bring them into a room and have them speak to him, at least not yet. He would like to receive their thoughts in writing. This is how uh, the, the um, plan for manufacturers this was considered. This is how the National Bank was considered. And this is how Washington, D.C. was considered. L'Enfant was asked to produce these memorials and then present this piece of writing that went along with these plans. Uh, I don't think it was L'Enfant's first preference. L'Enfant much would have preferred to sit in front of George Washington and explain what George Washington was looking at. But he took to the task of writing these with a verb, if not with, with skill in English. Um, and they provide an enormously important record. The third form of writing which, that I find in many ways most interesting 
was a set of what L'Enfant called memorials. After he had been removed or quit the project, after he had fallen into financial distress, after he had come under the care of uh, uh, the Diggs family, he would write these memorials to Congress and what he was asking for was back pay and recognition for the work he had done on the federal city because he accepted, asked for and accepted no pay during the project and certainly received no recognition after he left. And he wrote these memorials sometimes several a year, sometimes they went dozens and dozens of pages and they're all either in the Na Library of Congress or in the National Archives. And fascinating reading, many of them are, especially the later ones, were fractured, rambling. Some of them were even incoherent. Um, a psychologist or a psychiatrist would have an interesting time looking through them, looking for signs of um, perhaps depression, perhaps um, there's a fairly strong case that L'Enfant by that time in his life was addicted to opium. Um, and yet, and yet these documents uh, continued to write them and continued to make this, the, the same um, points with his scattershot approach to English grammar, vocabulary, and punctuation. And this struggle with his language is what makes it all the more remarkable that for 30 years his message stayed precisely on point, expressing a set of rationales, conceptual underpinnings, and arguments so consistently and convincingly that the reader, or at least this reader, is left with uh, little doubt about what did and didn't make up his original vision of the federal city. Three times in the period spanning March of 1791 and February of 1792, L'Enfant spoke in person with George Washington about his work on the plan, each time bearing that lengthy memorandum. Their first conversation was at, almost certainly at uh, Sutter's Inn in Georgetown in March of 1791, less than three weeks after L'Enfant had arrived on site. The text of his first accompanying memorandum contains a small but vital set of first decisions that predated any designs on paper. That's a couple months before this, he created this plan. At that point, L'Enfant wrote of the European Baroque tradition of city planning, although he didn't name it that. But Im implicitly and consistently, he outlined, quote, a sense of the real grand and truly beautiful, and at that moment, the first moment, declared himself the enemy of, quote, the tiresome and insipid grid plan exemplified in his mind by Philadelphia. He had no desire. It's very, very interesting uh, to realize that L'Enfant is still, uh, what would it be? Tw 15 years, 14 years away from his death when the, the country's uh, most prominent example of the grid plan is put in place with the 1811 commissioner's plan for New York City that dictated all the long, uh, the long blocks in New York City heading all the way up the island of Manhattan. Um, that, that was what he was the, the enemy of, although I, I don't know what he would have thought about New York. At that point, so too did he reveal his predisposition for topographical drama that led him to raise his eyes to the highest ground on what was otherwise a fairly level site, especially the wooded slopes of what he called Jenkins Hill, and we now know as Capitol Hill, an eminence from whose heights, he wrote, quote, every grand building would rear with a majestic aspect over the country all around. Already L'Enfant's looking to effuse the American capital, and he's just in these first three weeks of work with a symbolic magnificence that spoke less to its modest present than to its uh, seemingly unlimited future. 
At that point, he also wrote and presumably spoke to Washington about the advantages of the deeper eastern branch, today, today known as the Anacostia River, over the Potomac um, for waterborne commerce. And he proposed the transformation of the ferry road. Uh, let's see if my, yes, it does. Good, I've got a pointer here. I can interrupt here and just orient you for a second to this plan. I'm sure many of you, it's very recognizable still, of course, but you have Capitol Building, White House, where today sits the Washington Monument, right about there. You may be wondering why the Lincoln Memorial is floating out in the Potomac. <laughs> Some of you know this story, but this was very, very soon after this period of time, this was dangerous and unnavigable water, and so by the 1880s, 1890s, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers filled this in to create what today is West and East Potomac Park, so the Jefferson Memorial is, Jefferson Monument is here, Lincoln is, is here. That helps orient you to uh, this much wider Potomac here, uh, so we can get oriented well, at the time this city is put in place, this is farmland, forest, fields, um, not a lot of swamp. In fact, probably zero swamp, although low-lying marshy areas, we can, we, can, we can accept that those were there. But if anybody ever tells you it was built on a swamp, it wasn't, not at all. Um, Georgetown, of course, existed. We have Alexandria further down the river. But otherwise, this is fairly sparsely, sparsely populated. Two ferries ran at that time, one from Georgetown across, uh, across the river here, uh, and another, th this bridge didn't exist at that time, another ferry road down here crossing the Anacostia. And at this moment, L'Enfant proposes that the ferry road, which sort of, I'm, I'm, I hope you can see this little dot a little bit, the ferry road, which sort of did this following the hills, you know, meandered its way from one ferry landing to the next. He proposed that that be turned into the great central spine of the plan, which we know today is, of course, Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, there's, a reason that, uh, there's a reason that the Capitol and White House are where they are, and one, there's several reasons, but one of those reasons is that they fall along that central spine, that ferry road. He imagined it running from Georgetown over to the, the other ferry. Um, L'Enfant's second memorandum was the first to accompany a drawing, still predating this, predating this one, when in late June of 1791, he arrived at Mount Vernon with a hurried draft of the plan devoted not to this level of detail on street arrangements, but instead to what he called, quote, the situation and distances of objects. He was interested in placing things at that moment. He was now thinking carefully about the arrangement of roads and major buildings and the way an entire chronology of development would form around these elements. And this is what's most interesting about his second mem memorandum is he spends as much time talking about how the city would grow, uh, he spends as much time talking about that as you know, what, where the streets would go. And how the city was, would grow was this, the work of building and popula populating the city, he wrote, should, quote, be begun at points equidistant as possible from the center in order to promote a rapid settlement over the whole, in other words, in his mind, the yet-to-be-named Washington was to be a distributed city, a collection of smaller human-scaled villages that would over time knit together to form the city. It's a very powerful metaphor uh, for the knitting together of the country. 
In his thinking, each square, and by square he meant what we know today as the squares, the circles, the, you know, the, the public spaces, the places that are hard to drive through, right? Those are what, it wasn't, each one of those would be visible from the next. And in fact, on this plan, you'll find that no square is more than half a mile from the next, which he had been taught at the Royal Academy of Painting and Sculpture was the limits of optical comprehension, meaning the ability to make out detail, assuming a certain, a, a, a certain level of eyesight. Um, they would be visible uh, from the next, each visible to the next, and each given to an invisible function. 14 of these squares would be given to the original states plus the newly admitted Vermont for members of Congress and related functions, the others variously designated for schools, churches, memorial statues, healthful fountains, and other civic uses. The idea here, which seems a little far-fetched to us today, given 50 states and other factors, but the idea was here that if you were this, if the state of Massachusetts was given a square and the state of North Carolina was given a square and the, the senators and representatives were to build their homes there and of course that leads to a whole bunch of other people, early versions of lobbyists camping next to them but also servants, support staff, shops, the works, that not only would they create little tiny villages within this larger mesh but they would also bring people to the city and the incentive that each state would have to do a good job with their square would be that Massachusetts would in no way want North Carolina to do better than they did in terms of getting their square beautiful and accommodating. And that competition would create a city, part, part, part of that, that would be part of the, the uh, motive for creating a, a city. That would happen before the public buildings get built. As they received money from people buying lots around these, then that would go towards the public buildings. That's not what happened. In that same memorandum, and this is what I, I, find, I found and find most fascinating, he foregrounded the city's relationship to the Potomac River, which, as I explained, was twice as wide at that point, at least through this stretch, uh, through, through southwestern uh, Washington, it's twice as wide at that point. In his mind, the relationship of every element of this plan to the rivers was the great wellspring and organizing principle of the whole plan. We've lost that a little bit. Um, from the first settlement of the city, he wrote, the House of Congress and the President's residence would, quote, stand to ages in a central point facing on the grandest prospect of both branches of the Potomac. Very quickly, it's outlined in greater length of the book, if you want to understand where, why the President's House or White House is where it is and why the Congress House or Capitol is where it is, think about a view from the western side of the Capitol looking over the Potomac, the very wide and visible Potomac here. It's not so visible today because the land extends all the way out to here. Think about that the length of that vista, think about looking westward, think about the country's ideas at that time about what direction it was heading in and why it was heading in that direction. And think about George Washington, who we have to remember in 1791 was assumed to have the position of the presidency for life. In 1791, no one had anticipated that he'd serve two terms and then 
decline to serve a third. And so this was less the president's house at that moment than the place George Washington would conduct the business of the country. And, his, and, and, and if you look at a larger scale map, which I don't have, and you remove West and East Potomac Park, and you cast your eyes from this point, and you remove all the trees, and you'll notice here you remove the streets that we've built since then as L'Enfant, and you cast your eyes down here, eventually Alexandria, Virginia is visible, which, as many of you know, was George Washington's hometown, a town he helped to survey when he was 17 or 18 years old. I don't remember the exact age. And if you go to just the right bump of land out into the Potomac, there is a small portion of the estate of Mount Vernon visible from the, from the White House, and I'm not treating this as some obscure theory. L'Enfant writes about this over and over again. The connection of the president's house, George Washington's house, to the city of Alexandria and less explicitly to Mount Vernon was very important. This is your public access, head, access public access, A-X-I-S, heading west. This is a more private axis or vista heading south. Very, very important to L'Enfant that the river become this central element of the plan. He expanded his ideas at the second memorial, he ex or second memorandum, sorry. He expanded his ideas about Pennsylvania Avenue. This memorandum was also the first entry into the historical record of the National Mall, described in terms very familiar to the modern reader as, quote, a vast esplanade in the center of which, and at the point of intersection of the site from the Capitol and the White House, he didn't use those terms, but I'm, would be the most advantageous place for an equestrian statue, which, with proper appendages and walks artfully managed, would produce a most grand effect. What he had designated as a spot for an equestrian statue of Washington, of course, becomes the, becomes the very same place that we now have, or very close to it, the Washington Monument. All of these preliminary ideas reached their full flower two months later in August of 1791 when L'Enfant presented this, the manuscript plan to Washington, Jefferson, and Madison, reinforced by a set of elaborate written references, carefully handwritten in the margins of the drawing. The work, the plan, made by L'Enfant was now finished. Many newspapers in, in around the 13 states published these references in lieu of trying to reproduce the plan in one small corner of a newspaper page so that most Americans were first exposed to L'Enfant's design as ironically a written and not a drawn document. For the first quarter of the 19th century, as I said all the way up to his death, L'Enfant's memorials to Congress faithfully reiterated all the ideas I've already discussed. This consistency across so many decades of writing in so many different forms frees us to focus closely on what he never said and explore present-day assumptions that range from innocent and often repeated schoolhouse myths to deeply entrenched misconceptions. Certain misconceptions are easily dismissed. Uh, in nearly 35 years of writing about the federal city, L'Enfant never discussed embedding Masonic symbols in the plan or creating a Versailles in America. <laughs> the second one is, is the Versailles in America myth is particularly persistent, uh, but doesn't hold up. 
Um, he never spoke of an inside-out impetus for the city's design, a core to the city surrounded by neighborhoods that would play second fiddle to the plan's federal uh, re, uh, portions. He really did not imagine that the, the core of the city would, would rule the, the city in terms of space arrangement and plan. He felt that the entire, he, he wanted the entire city, each portion of it, to have its own value. He didn't write a word about defense or security at least in the sense of building fortifications with the city or in terms of placing cannons where they could take advantage of the long, wide, dominant avenues. That was not part of the design. Uh, he certainly couldn't and didn't fathom the prospect of motorized vehicles used as bombs, anything called restricted airspace, or the need to protect against underground biochemical attacks. Uh, there are other silences that, that create an open space for our own readings two centuries later. We're on our own when we consider the boundaries, purpose, and character of the current memorial-filled mall. For its original designer only wrote about a democratic gathering space, wide and grassy, providing an expansive western vista from the Capitol building and punctuated near the banks of the Potomac by that equestrian statue of George Washington. He never envisioned a treasury building blocking the reciprocal view between the Capitol and White House, changing forever the character and experience of Pennsylvania Avenue. In all of his writing, L'Enfant never mentioned any placement of buildings or open spaces related to ideas of constitutional equilibrium or the separation of powers. And L'Enfant never imagined that so soon after his work, others would turn the White House and Capitol around so that their fronts faced away from the mall away from the Potomac and the long views over water that were so important to his iconography. He didn't foresee the expansion of the mall and reduction in width of the Potomac River, nor could he have ever predicted the expansion of the federal government to its current size, a growth that gave birth to the ongoing tensions and Byzantine connections between federal and private realms. Given all these silences, what degree of allegiance do we owe to L'Enfant than the artist in the first decades of the 21st century? You have to beg the question, because the answer, of course, lies somewhere between none and total. In 1900, when the American Institute of Architects decided to dedicate its biannual meeting to solving what were then the manifest planning problems bedeviling Washington, it was guest speaker Rick Olmsted son of the famous landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted, Jr., who suggested that the best way to reclaim the city's beauty and meaning was to strip away the past 110 years in order to revisit L'Enfant's own plan and antecedents. In 1900, when the Macmillan Commission started their work, the mall as we know it today didn't exist. There's a train, a train track running across the mall, elevated train track running across the mall right about here. If you were standing here looking at the Capitol, about every half hour you'd see a gigantic plume of white smoke here obscuring your view from the trains. Various gardens, various outbuildings, various shed shacks, some sheep and cows. Um, it, was, it was not what we're used to today. Olmsted's declaration was the first step on the way to that Macmillan plan that created the core of the city as we experience it today. But even the work of the Macmillan Commission, made up of Olmsted, architects Daniel Burnham and Charles McKim, and sculptor Augustus St. Gaudens, 
was not a return to L'Enfant, but an architectural reinvention, owing as much to the Chicago's World Fair of 1893 and the, and the growing City Beautiful movement as it did to the original planner's vision. They knew what we knew, that the city is fundamentally ours, not L'Enfant's. Every decision made at every level or of planning part of a complex, multi-layered interpretation of L'Enfant's work, centuries in the making. If we do want to be originalists, and Grant L'Enfant allowed to say in our interpretive conversation, we're not supplied with a set of ready answers. Instead, we're confronted with a set of really complicated questions. Our own answers to those questions and our disagreement about those answers, and the fact that those answers are still, after 219 years, tied to an individual act of creation, give L'Enfant's planning its standing as a very important work of art. The consideration of those questions is a work of many years. It's not really my job, and it's not one, of, one for one sh uh, short talk, but at the very least, we can say that they revolve around the character and livelihood of all the city's neighborhoods, around ever thornier issues of accessibility and security, and about the relationship between historic preservation and com commercial development. They circle back to the importance of the Potomac River and the possibilities of great vistas from as well as to the Capitol and White House. In all of the decisions made after 9-11, the only one I really want to stand up in front of any group of people and talk about is, let's make sure the western plaza of the Capitol is opened and stays open uh, so that we can we can look out over the mall from the only place L'Enfant really imagined people seeing the entire mall. Um, these questions persist as we continue to investigate the nature and use of the grand and beautiful, as L'Enfant put it, and try to understand the aesthetic and, aesthetic and symbolic aspects of private and public spaces of all sizes. It's the open and ongoing nature of these questions, the continuing work of L'Enfant's machine, as Eco would have put it, that best defines Washington, D.C., uh, doing as much as any particular kind of power concentrated in the city to make Washington unique, meaningful, and worthy of our thought and attention. I just want to read one page, and then uh, I'd love to take questions. Um, this is the last page, or little more than that, of, of my epilogue, and it talks, I, again, I leave L'Enfant behind, and I talk about the history of this, and it's just as as someone who does a lot of primary research and looks at a lot of old documents, I found this fascinating. Just as the wholesale destructions of the French Revolution left presidential uh, potential, sorry, biographers to sift through a depleted inventory of official records relating to his family, so too has the absence of most of L'Enfant's working papers and drawings. When L'Enfant quit the job, he left without taking his stuff with, with him, and it was mostly scattered to the wind, which is why we only have this one drawing. That has left architectural historians with only partially informed guesswork as to his working methods, his use of precedent, his preliminary ideas for the White House and Capitol, which he was engaged to design, and the changes he made in the plan of Washington, D.C. from version to version. What does remain to posterity is a single smudged and tattered drawing, the plan that Washington presented to Washington, Jefferson, and Madison. Its life has not been happy or healthy. In fact, by the time George Washington handed this drawing over to the D.C. Commissioner's Office in 1796, he was already bemoaning its fading pencil lines, the first evidence of two centuries of disintegration. 
The first attempt to ensure, ensure the drawing's longevity was made early in the 19th century when an anonymous preservationist in the city's employ mounted the cracking and curling plan on a piece of cotton cloth and applied a transparent glue varnish to the entire surface in broad horizontal brush strokes. A common practice at the time, this care only hastened the shortening of the paper's linen fibers and turned the cream-colored surface a muddy sepia. After the Civil War, this plan was transferred to the newly created Office of Public Buildings and Grounds in the basement of the Capitol, where according to one report, it sat loose among other maps and blueprints. When in the 1880s, the decision was made to fill in the Potomac's dangerous and unsightly tidal flats, the plan was temporarily transferred to the U.S. Coast and Geodetic Survey so that a facsimile might be made uh, for use in the lawsuits sure to re result from the remaking of the city's physical shape. Lawsuits which continue today. Not a lot of them, but if you've read Bleak House by Charles Dickens, it's the same kind of thing. <laughs> two dozen expert draftsmen and cartographers assisted as a copy of the drawing was made onto two sheets of tracing paper for use in creating a clear photolithograph. The document was then returned to its basement room at the Capitol, and for 30 more years, its watercolor washes and pencil lines continued to fade while its ink continued to bleed. In 1918, the plan was brought to the Library of Congress, and here L'Enfant's handiwork finally began to receive the attention it so badly needed. Placed in a wooden box under a thick glass shield, the plan was seldom viewed until 1951, when another effort at restoration was made, replacing the cotton cloth backing with sturdier material and mending what cracks and tears could be mended. This was the last time the drawing was altered in any way, as an extensive study 10 years later in the 60s provided a determination that still obtains today. It's been through enough, leave it alone. Technology is slowly catching up to L'Enfant's plan. Today, less than 20 ounces of paper now sit enclosed in 108 pounds of polystyrene, anodized aluminum, and plexiglass, sealed off from the outside and breathing an otherworldly atmosphere made of pressurized argon gas. Only five documents at the Library of Congress have been placed in this type of life support apparatus. L'Enfant's plan, George Mason's Virginia Declaration of Rights, two drafts of the Gettysburg Address in Lincoln's hand, and Thomas Jefferson's draft of the Declaration of Independence. The presence of Jefferson's very best work encased in its own preservative shell and resting nearby in the same secret refrigerated chamber is especially provocative, linking the two erstwhile collaborators in a way neither could have ever imagined. Born in a great rush of activity and inspiration, L'Enfant's 1791 manuscript plan is a founding document, able to take a place beside its more famous written counterparts as an early and lasting expression of the democratic political experiment that was the United States of America. L'Enfant's design echoed the designs of cities across Europe, but it was also the first great artistic achievement that could truly be called American. He was an impatient and impolite man who refused to surrender even the smallest detail of his grand design, qualities that resulted in his failure and in his success. All Major L'Enfant wanted was to be judged by his work, and that work was all-consuming. It was also brilliant. And then I want to read you one little quote just because it's fun. I have a little end quote in the book. Uh, when things were starting to fall, around, fall apart, George Washington wrote a private letter to the federal city commissioners, the three that he had uh, appointed, and the three who were butting heads with L'Enfant at every single possible turn. He wrote this letter, and I love George Washington's way of using the word myth in this quote, if you hear it for now. If L'Enfant should take myth and leave the business, I have no scruple in declaring to you 
though I do not want him to know it, that I know not where another is to be found who could supply his place. Anyway, thanks. <laughs> I don't know how much time I left. I think I went pretty quick. I think we have time for questions still. I think microphones are going to come around. So, Question number one. I think there's right. two microphones are going to make right. their way around. Okay, great. Uh, did he have any family? I mean, was it? He did. did. I mean, that, I, I go through that. He, uh, like, as I said, his father was a uh, court, court painter, painted battle scenes specifically. In fact, his father specialized in siege scenes, I mean, an interesting special, this is how France worked then, you had somebody in your court who just painted siege scenes, which put him, as I said, down the ladder of artists. He, he uh, would have painted these, um, the War of Austrian Secession, other wars that I don't know all that much about, he would, he would go and paint the siege scenes, which required him, his father, to study uh, the construction and nature of fortifications, and would also teach him how to put those sort of within a field with foreground background and what's funny is his father almost certainly never met Louis the, the, the king but he, but he, there he is on a little horse in front of every whether he was necessarily at that siege or not um, that was w what his father did um, mother was the daughter of a might she was much younger than her husband uh, mother was a daughter of a kind of a minor naval official and they lived at the, the Goblins, which is a tapestry manufacturer there, which was in one of the, the rowdiest and, and naughtiest parts of Paris in the 13th arrondissement. Um, and they, but it was this, the, the tapestry manufacturer, which you can still go and tour today, and I highly recommend it. No, very few tourists go to the 13th, but it's absolutely worth it. It was an enclosed sort of city. You lived there, and, and he would have lived there. He uh, had a sister we know very little about, meaning nothing, really. So, um, and an older brother who died very young. The family records were burned and destroyed. They were probably at the tapestry manufacturer, and that's where the, the, you know, during the revolution they came and burned the storerooms. And so we have very little knowledge of, we know his family came from a farming town just outside of Paris. That's about it. Uh, one of the reasons that a you know, large, full-scale biography of L'Enfant has not been written is because it's very hard to write a biography when you're operating with such drips and drabs from the first 20 years of somebody's life. This is the story of L'Enfant, but my book is also the story of the origins of DC and his role. It, mul multiple pieces. There are a couple of scholars who are working very hard in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris and other places to, but it's, it it's, it's just feels like an endless, endless task to try to go over there and hunt for that one document. So, But we know a little bit. Uh, yes. Of all the important questions that I could ask, forgive me for a mundane one, but for a man without family, without money, without recognition, why would he do something so everlasting without money, for, well, without he, pay, without no, recompense? No, I understand what you're saying. He did, ha he did have money. He had, a, a, he had a various pensions that came to him through his military experience. And there is some evidence that he had an inheritance. His father died very shortly after he, yeah, very, well, a few years before starting this project anyway. And there's some evidence some money was coming to him through that. He, he had sources of income. If you were someone like L'Enfant connected with these events, people were enormously willing to put you up. And a lot of them, it can't, it can't be overemphasized how much so many of them followed 
the example of George Washington. There was an idea of the perfect soldier of the Roman Republic that they all sort of, and Washington was sort of at the head of that, and Washington's decision not to accept salary as commander-in-chief, it was considered, if you were doing a project of vast public importance, it was considered absolutely required that you would publicly refuse salary. And L'Enfant was the kind of guy who probably tried to make a public declaration of, of not taking a salary, at the beginning at least, uh, when things were going well. Uh, but he had no avenue to make a public declaration, so sometimes in his letters you find references to things that he felt he was trying to do very publicly, but he's kind of a poor guy that way. I mean, he, nobody was probably paying attention to the fact he made that declaration. I don't think anybody cared whether L'Enfant got paid or not, but he refused, you know, he said, I don't want to be paid. There is some evidence he had some money, enough money coming to him, at least uh, before 1800 to live and to, you know, keep a small house or other things. After 1800, that clearly dried up and he just lived off the good graces of, of others. And he kept finding people to take him in. And I think it's partly because he was associated with this city. And I think also it's because um, I think he was interesting to have around. I mean, the letters sort of indicate that. He was not your run-of-the-mill sort of border. So, but that's a short answer to a long question. Mm-hmm. Uh, did L'Enfant's plan, plan mandate that the important uh, streets be named after the states? Oh, that's a great question. Because this there were only 13, so did they... Well, at that time they were, they knew, uh, you know, <laughs> they my, my civics lessons failed me. Vermont, certainly, I think the next one was uh, Kentucky. Yeah. Um, 15, correct me, somebody here knows if that's right or not. But anyway, they had an idea what was coming. Um, it, what's, in fact, this is totally an aside, but at the beginning of the 20th century, I was fascinated to find all the people writing about the United States, writing about 50 states when we were still waiting on Alaska and Hawaii. It was sort of the same way then. So I believe you're going to find Vermont and, and uh, uh, maybe a couple other states in here. Anyway, that's not L'Enfant's decision. This is very, very interesting. That was made by uh, Jefferson, Madison, and the three commissioners. L'Enfant consulted on the decision, but I don't really think L'Enfant cared what the streets were called. He, by that time, everyone knew the city would either be Washington or Washingtonopolis or a couple different versions of that. People knew that. But in terms of city, those decisions were made by the commissioners. And there's enough, it's interesting, there's enough that we know exactly who made the decision and when they made the decision. I believe the date's September 8th, 1791. I write in the book that that's really part of the origin of the city. That's when cities come into being, when streets get named and avenues. What's interesting, what's missing from the record is why, and so why the various streets were given. But there's a, Pennsylvania, in the sweepstakes to get the national capital, the big last second loser, thanks to James Madison, who won, was Pennsylvania, and there's a lot of speculation that Pennsylvania was given that prime avenue for being second place. Um, I've always found it interesting that because of the growth of DC that, that the avenues that are most recognizable to me, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, but, but Connecticut, but that certain states like Wisconsin get enormous prominence because of just the way the city grew and others. I'm from Minnesota originally. Good luck finding. <laughs> Minnesota and Minnesota and Wisconsin, if you follow the fates of the Vikings and Packers, don't like each other all that much. And so for them to have this very prominent street. And for, anyway, I have been on Minnesota Avenue. It's not that hard to find. But yeah, that was uh, Jefferson, Madison, and the three commissioners. Yes. 
Thank you very much for this just fascinating and such an articulate presentation. Uh, my question is a little bit different. Do you know when Jackie Kennedy was doing all of her important work for restoring and improving things in D.C., was she uh, trying to focus at all on things connected with L'Enfant? I, I would be leaving my area of expertise uh, by a wide margin to really answer that question, but the answer is uh, no. Um, the answer is, is it the better answer to that question is that L'Enfant's I guess, a recognition or awareness has gone through some really remarkable swings. And I'm not at all crediting my book with this. I think my book rode the wave rather than created the wave. But right now, we're really in a period where we're paying a lot of attention to fun. What's really fascinating is how it's ever, it seems to be about every 110 years that uh, the Macmillan Commission pays a lot of attention to them, and now 110 years later, after that, we're paying about every century. We pay a lot of attention to L'Enfant. Um, that per, per particular period of time, I do know this in my research. If you did database searches and newspapers, his name wasn't coming up. So, but I can't answer the question beyond that. Thanks. It's a great question. But yes. <laughs> uh, were there uh, alternatives uh, uh, to L'Enfant? In other words, why did? Uh, uh, Washington select him. Could you repeat the question? Why Were there alternatives to Lafont to selecting? Why Lafont? Yeah. Were there any other choices? Oh, okay. No, thank you. Sorry, I just these kind of rooms. Um, the uh, the um, the answer to that question is, uh, unless it has completely escaped the historical record, no. The the there are, there's context for this, which I'll do in 30 seconds or less, which is that L'Enfant met George Washington. Didn't, he wouldn't, it wasn't a grand meeting, but he met him at Valley Forge, one of the first places L'Enfant ended up as a volunteer soldier was at Valley Forge. And there's a fascinating series of documents which make it 95% certain that at the behest of Lafayette, the Marquis de Lafayette, uh, that L'Enfant painted or drew a portrait of George Washington for Lafayette. Because Lafayette would have known, he wouldn't have known L'Enfant personally. They were miles apart on the, on the, on the scale of, of fame and money and all those kinds of things. But he apparently knew that L'Enfant was an artist, asked him. So he, Washington sat for L'Enfant, we know that. L'Enfant was the redesigned federal hall to become the first in New York City to be city hall to become federal hall, the first American Capitol building. That's where Washington did his first inaugural address. As early as 1783, L'Enfant had been consulted on possible plans for a federal city. He had planned important parties. The birth of the Dauphin. L'Enfant was involved in renovating a townhome in Philadelphia to become the play, a grand party for this uh, moment of one of the last moments of French and American. Um, Amity. So the, the, the answer is he, this wasn't out of the blue. He had sort of grown in Washington's awareness and estimation. The other piece to it, the last piece to it, is he was a confidant, at least at one time in his life, L'Enfant was a confidant of Alexander Hamilton, who would have been a uh, very influential uh, advisor to Washington, of course. So he was, he was known to him, and there was no evidence anyone else was even considered. Sure. Um, during the signing, I'll be happy to give you 10-second answers to anything. Or, <laughs> I mean, really. 
Who was it that held L'Enfant in such esteem as to name L'Enfant Plaza after him? Uh, L'Enfant Plaza is an interesting case. I don't know who made the decision. I hope this answers the question. I'll be brief. But I don't know who made the decision to name L'Enfant Plaza after L'Enfant. But, and I'm passing this off to several other people who told me this in the process of doing some reporting for the Washington Post. So this, this isn't me saying this, but I agree with it, I think. It's remark. I don't know how it was named L'Enfant. I do know that it's the least L'Enfantian place. <laughs> and, and seriously, on a day like today, I think it's warmer up there than it is here right now. When I, uh, Go stand on it today and see how long you last. Um, it's a very, you know, it, there's nothing in any of his writings that suggested that that was the kind of place he was interested in. It's, it, it is very sort of what's most, think of a place like any of the Lincoln's, and I realize you may not be familiar with these, but there are certain circles that are full of activity, full of life. Uh, Lincoln Square is one of them, east, east of the Capitol building, uh, certainly DuPont Circle, certainly. In all of his writings, the more people were using his circles in the mo greater variety of ways, the happier he would have been. And that also doesn't apply to L'Enfant Plaza. Just watch, I did this as part of researching the book just to do it. I sat there and watched people pour out of the, the buildings and everything at the end of the day, and it, it just it empties out faster than any place, I think, in Washington. People come out and go. And, and I think that this will be the last, the last thing I'll say. Um, I think that applies to the circles and squares. Everybody complains about them. Obviously, he didn't have driving in mind. But the last thing he would have been interested in was creating any space where the point of the space was to get through it as rapidly as possible. <laughs> and in fact, I think any city planner would tell you that. I mean, I don't think that's you know unique with him. And I, I think any place you see people linger, the, there's a lot of complaints about the, the mall in many ways. But on certain summer days when the place is packed and there's volleyball games going on and there's people sitting on the grass and there's you know, kids running around, I'm not trying to be sentimental here. I'm just saying I think L'Enfant would have been pleased to see people using it and congregating. And that's why L'Enfant, I realize that doesn't, you asked a different question, but that's what I know and I have to say. So <laughs> that's how it works. Thank you.